Good morning, my name's James, one of the pastors at FEC, and it is so good to see you here today, and welcome to all of you who are joining with us online too. Thank you for spending part of your Sunday morning with us. The smoke is mostly out of the building. We had a lot of smoke in here last night. It was kind of, it looked like we'd hazed the room for some big event, but it was just, you could see it all floating around. Nice today, that's good. Last weekend, in our scripture reading, as we were working our way through the book of Acts, we traveled to Europe with the Apostle Paul. Interestingly enough, in a couple of weeks' time, Jillian and I are going to Europe, not with the Apostle Paul, but we will meet, get to meet our brand new grandson, the next rendition of a James Payton, who was born a few weeks ago. We're excited to see him. But last weekend, as we read together, we were with Paul, one of these earliest followers of Jesus, who's been commissioned by God to take the good news of Jesus everywhere he possibly could. And in Acts chapter 16, he arrived at a town called Philippi in what we would call Greece today. And there he met a woman called Lydia and a church began in her home, the very first Christian community in Europe. And today in our Unexpected Acts series, we're still in chapter 16, where more unexpected things begin to happen to our missionary hero. In fact, Paul, he ends up in jail. Anyone been in prison? Well, we'll maybe not do the hands up thing because that might be awkward for you. Most of us have only ever been in jail playing Monopoly. You didn't pass go, you didn't get $200, and you needed a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not exactly what it was like for Paul and Silas. So let's listen together and read together. Acts chapter 16, and beginning at verse 16. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a female slave who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the authorities. When they'd brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men, these Jews, are disturbing our city, and they're advocating for customs that are not lawful for us, being Romans, to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they'd given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and followed the jailer to keep them securely, ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, we're all here! The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. 
Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. You can maybe see why we called today an ironic escape. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and most likely Luke, the author of the book of Acts, were going to somewhere to pray in Philippi where they had been doing since they arrived. The same place where they'd encountered Lydia. And here this day they encounter another woman who was a slave. She was in bondage both to her owners, but also to an evil spirit that possessed her, a double bondage, if you like. The name of the spirit doesn't show up in our English translations. It just talks about the spirit of divination. The name in Greek is readable there. It's Python. Apollo, a mythical Greek god, supposedly killed the Python who guarded the oracle at Delphi, a big thing in those days. And somehow he gained the snake's ability to be able to see the future or do some fortune telling. And the rumor and the belief was that people who had the spirit of the Python had the ability to see into the future and fortune tell for others. The only other Python story I know is of a woman who kept a pet Python and she used to let it come to bed with her for who knows what reason. And she asked a person that she knew about snakes one time, why was the snake always lying long ways beside her? And he said, oh, that's quite straightforward. It's measuring you so it knows when it's big enough it can eat you. <laughs> Don't mess about with pythons, there's all I know. But this woman made a lot of money out of fortune telling, not for herself, but for her human owners. Only on this day, things began to change. She started following the missionary team around wherever they were going. She pretty much became their PR department, yelling out and telling everybody how important they are. These men are slaves of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, Paul gets ticked off about this. I'm not sure why, but he does. And he eventually commands this evil spirit to leave her alone. And it did. No fighting, no shouting, no nothing. It just left. In some senses, that she's free now. Except she's not. Because somebody still owns her. She's still a slave to people who don't see her as a person. She's just a commodity. Someone to exploit. Someone to make them rich. And these people get ticked off. Actually, something like this happened to Jesus one time. One day in Luke 8, Jesus has met a man who is completely beside himself because of evil spirits that have become part of his life and taken him hostage. And Jesus throws these demons, these spirits, into a herd of pigs that run off the edge of the cliff. And for all that he did that day, Jesus was escorted out of town kind of at gunpoint by the local pork dealers association. They were not happy with Jesus getting involved. Another time when Paul was in a city called Ephesus, lots of people were surrendering their lives to Jesus and it was disrupting the trade in silver in the town of Ephesus. And the members of the International Brotherhood of Artisans of Silver Shrines to the god Artemis, they were not happy in Acts 19. But regardless of all of that, it strikes me as how easy it is for people to abuse and hurt one another, to exploit one another. Human trafficking, sex slaves, Child labor, blood diamonds, cobalt mines, child soldiers. It still continues today. Whenever faith or religion, whatever you want to call it, gets mixed up in economics, gets mixed up in profit motive, the vested interests will do what the vested interests always do. They'll fight back. They'll fight hard. They'll fight dirty. And that's what happens even today. They fight back. In verse 19, there's a citizen's arrest. Accusations are made. Charges are brought. Justice is circumvented. Three of the accusations are made against Paul and Silas. 
First off, that they were Jews. An anti-Semitism that appeals to nationalism and racial prejudice, just as it does today. They were accused of disturbing the peace, appealing to an obsession with law and order in the criminal justice system. They were accused of advocating for un-Roman customs, some form of populism and elitism that puts them on the outs. The accusations even sound plausible, even if they are racial or political, they sound there as though they could be real, but in reality, it's all about business and it's all about money. Her owners had lost a prized possession that they could no longer exploit. They wanted her back and they wanted her back by getting her to work again and they needed rid of Paul and Silas first. The crowd starts chanting, protests get louder, due process is set aside and punishment is swift. Interestingly, Paul and Silas didn't claim their rights as Roman citizens. If you read on to the very end of chapter 15, when this all unravels at the end, you discover that they both are Roman citizens. And in fact, when they confront the magistrates at the end and say so, the lawyers, the justice people are all kind of freaked out. One, because they hadn't followed any kind of process. And two, because they weren't allowed to treat Roman citizens this way. They were fearful for their lives. They're like, just leave, get out of here, leave us alone. This isn't what we need anymore. But I got wondering, why wouldn't they say anything? I mean, if you knew you had your get out of jail free card and Monopoly, why are you not using it right away? Why did they wait? Was it because, well, they'd need a bit of time and effort to get the documents to prove that they were Romans? Maybe. Or maybe they were concerned for their friends, Timothy and Luke, who definitely were not Roman citizens. What would happen to them? Maybe they'd get picked on and they'd be the two sent to prison. Maybe they didn't think they could do that. Or maybe they just didn't have an opportunity to say anything because it all happened so quickly. Nobody asked their opinion. Nobody said, how do you plead, guilty or innocent? It just was a done deal. But whatever the reason, they're quickly stripped of their clothes, they're flogged and they're put in jail, not in club fed. They end up in a supermax prison equivalent, the innermost cell as it's called. No windows, no nothing, placed in the stocks and left there to rot and possibly die. That's how it happened. What would you do? I mean, what would you do if you found yourself in a nightmare like this? I know it's hard to imagine, really. I mean, a difficult situation. How do you imagine what you would do 2,000 years ago in a Roman prison, having been beaten half to death and abandoned? It's hard to get your head around. But maybe it's easier if I could ask you these questions then. What would you do if the doctor told you you only had months left? What would you do if you get up on Tuesday morning and discovered you'd lost your job? What would you do if all your retirement savings went south and your fixed income isn't very fixed? What would you do if somebody betrayed you? What would you do if you lost your home next month? What would you do if you lost your child? What would you do if you lived your own nightmare? What would you do? I'm fairly certain I would not do what Paul and Silas did. And what were they doing in verse 25? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. In the darkness of midnight, with their flesh torn apart, they're praying and singing. I get the praying part, although my prayer would be more like complaining than saying anything else. I'm good at complaining to God. It's kind of like one of my spiritual gifts. Anybody else got that? But singing, praise and worship, nobody else is doing that. There's nobody in this prison has an ounce of joy left in their body, not a single person. And if I'm honest, there's not very often I feel that way. 
It's not very often when I start singing when life gets difficult, praying in a predicament, singing in struggles, struggles, trusting in our troubles, not so much. But Paul and Silas, although their bodies were broken, their spirits were soaring in worship. They were praising God. Instead of questioning God for allowing them to get into this, how could you have let this happen? You brought us here. We did our best. We've just started this little church. Why is this happening to us? Instead of complaining or questioning, they were thanking God for the privilege. Just like the very earliest followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 5, when we read that they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. Look at that. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Later on, Paul would write to his friends and he said this, we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not produce shame put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Is this jailhouse where Paul learned that lesson? Maybe. Violence is turned into appreciation and agony is turned into praise and hurt is turned into hope. That's unexpected. (laughs) But then look what happens next in verse 26. An earthquake. Greece and Turkey sit in a very active earthquake zone even still today. If you've been following the news, there have been two fairly significant earthquake incidents this year in Turkey where lots of lives have been lost. It's been a real tragedy. And in this past week, there's been an earthquake in Greece. But this is an unexpected earthquake here in chapter 16. It's not quiet. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter is placed in prison, there's something happens and an angel comes and escorts Peter. Peter out of the prison cell and into freedom, but there's no big noise. Nothing's really shaking. Nobody really knows what's happened. But here in Acts 16, this is described as a severe earthquake, a violent earthquake, more like the ones that we see in the news. The foundations of the building were shaken. But unlike the things we see in the TV, the prison walls didn't collapse. There aren't hundreds of people buried under rubble. Instead, what happens is the earthquake unlocked the cell doors and people's chains fell off. That's unexpected, certainly unusual. It all happened at midnight. It's dark. There's no candles, hardly any windows. Nobody can really see what's going on. Nobody can quite explain what happened, but the earth heaves and the prisoners are freed. But instead of running as fast as they can, they're all standing still. An ironic escape, an unexpected act. Nobody believes there's no prison break here. Everybody's present and accounted for. That's weird. And in verse 27, we read that the jailer is quite rightly freaked out and no wonder. It's not just that he assumes he's lost his prisoners. He's lost his job. Who's going to employ him anymore? He's lost his reputation. He's the guy that lost everybody. In fact, because of the Roman laws at the time, he's all but lost his life. The law would state that all of the prisoners who escaped, their sentence would now be inflicted on the jailer. And thinking about all the terrible things that could happen to him, he's assuming it would just be better if he ended his own life than waited for what was coming to him. And Paul's telling him, whoa, 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 shouts out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Hold on. Or in patent vernacular, it would mean something like this, steady the buffs. My kids always want me to say that on stage. Don't even ask, just let it go. But the jailer, he's on his knees. Up until now, Paul has been his prisoner and a 
the jailer has been in charge and now Paul is standing there and the jailer is on his knees in front of him. And the jailer asks, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a question. It is a great question. It's the best question. Have you ever asked it? What must I do to be saved? Now I know full well, we don't exactly know what the jailer meant by that. Was he thinking to himself, how do I avoid the wrath of the Roman authorities? Quite possibly. Or maybe he's thinking, how can I avoid the displeasure of the Roman gods? Or maybe he too had heard Paul and Silas singing and praying as the prisoners heard him. And he really did mean, how can I be saved by Jesus? How can I be delivered from this calamity? How can I be saved for all eternity? How can I know peace with God? Or as one writer would put it, gentlemen, can you please tell me, how can I get out of this mess? Because the reality is our world is a mess. It's a mess. Human rebellion and idolatry and sin against God. It's a mess because of corruption in human lives and relationships. It's a mess because of the pollution and exploitation of our world that turns our sky orange and makes it difficult to breathe outside. It's a mess because of worldwide systems of economic exploitation that leaves so many people struggling to survive. It's a mess because of human slavery and trafficking. It's a mess because of exclusion and discrimination. It is a mess because of greed and anger. And whether it's someone's personal sudden crisis or somebody in desperate need or sorrow in their own lives, or whether it's a barrier that we've built all for ourselves between us and God with our choices. It's a mess. We're a mess. We've made the mess. Paul would later, later on write and say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. All means me. All means you. We've all sinned. We all fall short. We all bear responsibility. We all wander from God. We're all in the mess. We all helped create the mess. And for many of us, even though we believe in Jesus, sometimes we get to thinking, well, this is just the way the world is. There's nobody can fix this. It's just the way the world is. What do we do? We all hope one day there's going to be the world the way it should be when Jesus is reigning as Lord. But we assume in the meantime, well, there's not much we can do about it, is there? But is that true? Is it true there's nothing we can do about it? Or should we rather learn to tell ourselves, this world can become what God intended even here and now because Jesus already reigns in his world, his Lord, and his reign spreads as people one by one surrender their lives to his will and acknowledge his lordship. His reign extends as we continue to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now, not just then. There's nothing we can do, I don't think so. There is plenty that we can do as we partner with what God is asking us to do, to take the story of Jesus far and wide, to live as Jesus lived and to build a future that resembles all that God has ever dreamed for his world. Paul has saved the jailer from death by his sword, from taking his own life, 
And now he's going to point him toward Jesus who will save him from ultimate death and for all eternity. He's pointing him to Jesus so that Jesus can reign in this man's life, so that Jesus will reign in the family members of this man's life, so that the jailer can participate in God's grand plan when he says he's making everything new. Something special is in store for this jailer because it's Jesus who brings joy and brings hope and purpose and direction to all of our lives. So much so that Paul would later on write a letter to this little church in Philippi that met in Lydia's home. So much so he would said, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain because Jesus changes everything. He can change your life. He can change your relationships. He can change your destination. He can change your destiny. He can change this world. Jesus changes everything. The jailer's question, sirs, what must I do to be saved is met with the reply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. How do we get out of the mess? Believe in Jesus. It's one of the biggest themes in the whole book of Acts from the very beginning when the apostle Peter preaches the first sermon and he stands up and he says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's all about Jesus. It's where it starts because Jesus changes everything. When we call on Jesus, when we choose to believe in him and place our trust in him, when we surrender to him, he changes everything. Jesus saves He certainly changed the jailer's life. You can see it almost immediately in what happens next in verses 33 and 34. The jailer washes their wounds. No more wanton cruelty. No more enhanced interrogation. Now his life is marked by tenderness and kindness and compassion. And then we discover the jailer's family. They all get baptized. We read that Paul spoke the word of the Lord to all of them. Everybody in the jailer's house and they were all baptized. Just like last weekend here at FAC across all congregations and campuses when we baptized 39 people who declared publicly their faith in Jesus Christ. They were all baptized. And then Paul bring, or the jailer brings Paul and Silas into their home, his home and extends hospitality. They have a meal together. And everybody is rejoicing at this newfound faith. How does our world get out of this mess? How does Jesus change everything? One changed life at a time. We're set free and commissioned to share the good news and to love and care and serve in Jesus' name. It's a great story. But what's it got to do with us? What's it got to do with me? In so many ways, this story really has nothing to do with you. It's really got nothing to do with me either, to be honest. I mean, think about it. Most of us have never cast out a troublesome spirit. We've never been put in jail for disturbing the peace. We've never been saved by an earthquake and then immediately baptized as a brand new follower of Jesus. And in that sense, the story has really little to do with us. Unless, unless there is a hope and yearning deep within your heart that there has to be more to life than this. That something needs to be different, but you don't know what. Unless you want to be free from your chains, like the female slave was freed when they spoke to her. Unless you're tired of living life filled with fears that hold you back, like the magistrates who felt they had to go along with the crowd. 
unless you're just sleeping your way through life like the jailer who thinks nothing will ever change, every day will always be the same. Unless you've started listening to the singing and praying of somebody else and wondering, why that? Why now? Really? Could this be for me? Unless perhaps you're living at the edge of an earthquake zone in your own life and you're waiting for it to fracture apart and you know it's not going to be good. Unless you want to be saved and if it comes to any of these come close to your life, then the story does matter to you. This story is very real for you. It's got everything to do for you. It matters because the slave girl was freed to be herself. It mattered because everybody's chains were broken and they were set free. It mattered because as people sang and prayed, a jail opened miraculously. It matters because Jesus, the chain breaker, changes everything. This is really a liberation story. I mean, think for a minute or two about all the reversals that you see in the story between bondage and freedom. It starts out with a a slave bound to her owners and yet somehow free to follow Paul and Cyrus around the town. She's a slave to the spirit. But then Paul, she turns around and calls Paul and Silas slaves of the most high God. Paul frees her from the evil spirit, but she's still a slave to the people who exploit her. Her owners, who seem to be in charge of everything, They're slaves to their own greed. Paul and Silas are put in prison, but they're still free to worship. The earthquake frees the prisoners, but they choose to all stay inside the prison. The jailer has lived in freedom being in charge, but now it feels like he's a slave to the authorities. He used to be in charge, and now he ends up in knees before Paul and Silas as prisoners. Those who were free, the jailer and the owners... It turns out they're all in bondage and the people that were bound, the female slave, Paul and Silas, now they're free. Everyone at the start of the story who appeared to be free, the girls, owners, the magistrates, the jailer, they're all slaves. And everyone who we thought as we read the story were slaves, the poor girl and the missionaries, they're free. God is in the business of rescuing and liberating slave people. He brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt, the story of the Exodus, book number two in our Bibles. You've maybe heard that story of God freeing them all and Moses leading them through the desert and across the Red Sea. We use the X from Exodus in all sorts of ways. Extraction, exit, evacuation, excavation, export. It's always about getting out of something, going somewhere else. God wants us to get out, to move from slavery to freedom. Are you free or are you in chains? Listen to these words of scripture that Jesus says of our enemy. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. The enemy lies and deceives He tells you you're worthless. You don't matter. You don't count. Nobody cares. He makes you replay the recording of every memory in your mind, of every humiliation, every rejection, every wound. He tells you your mistakes are fatal. He tells you you'll never change. You're too large, you're too short. You're too dumb, you're too smart. Nobody wants you. He wants to hold you in chains and he lies. 
Are you free? Or are you in chains? John in the book of Revelation says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them night and day before God. The enemy accuses. He's accused you. He accuses you with your doubts and your shame. He accuses you of fear. He accuses you of being unlovable. He accuses you of being inadequate. He accuses you of being an imposter. He accuses you of never really being a follower of Jesus. He accuses you of being unwanted, that no one would ever love you. He accuses. He lies. Are you in chains? Or are you free? Jesus' friend Peter would write, discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, looking for someone to devour. The enemy destroys and devours. He doesn't give up easily. It can feel relentless. Till life begins to feel hopeless and the crushing sense of what is the point of any of this? Will anything ever change? He destroys. He accuses. He lies. Are you free? Or are you in chains? The visible manifestation of God's power that night in the prison. It shook the foundations not only of the building and not only of the earthly power structures around, but of the unseen powers as well. Because nothing can keep God's servants locked up forever. God is a God who can free us. Would you like to live in freedom? The movie The Shawshank Redemption. Prisoners exercise by pacing the yard at Shawshank Prison, making plans for what they'll do once they're released or perhaps plotting another escape attempt. Eventually, one of the older prisoners called Brooks is released after spending most of his life behind bars. You'd imagine after all these years of imprisonment, you'd be looking forward to freedom, but there's a fear and anxiety that grows in his heart about whether he can make it in a different, less structured environment where he won't know what to do and how to live. He tries to make it on the outside, but it doesn't work. Carves his name in a beam in the boarding house where he's living. And then sadly, ends his own life right there. He'd become so so accustomed to captivity that the world of freedom made him so afraid. Sometimes we don't even really know what it feels like to be free. We can't really imagine living any differently than we do right now. We can't imagine turning off the recording in our mind. We can't imagine thinking everybody knows about me. We can't conceive what it is to live life without everybody staring and accusing. Can Jesus really set me free? Paul pointed the jailer toward Jesus Because if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is our liberator, our chain breaker, our savior. Jesus changes everything. What did Paul say to the evil spirit in verse 18? I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And she was free. 
And what did he say to the jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they were saved. Paul would later write, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. Are you ready to call on Jesus? Because Jesus changes everything. I'd like to pray for you this morning. And I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm going to make you stand up or do something awkward. But if your life feels bound, I want to pray today that you'll find freedom. Maybe it's like the jailer and you've never met Jesus before. And you've been doing your own thing your own way and in some ways a slave to yourself and your own desires and choices. But you'd love Jesus to set you free and give you a new life like you read about in these stories. I'd love to pray for you that today would be the day when you can open your heart honestly in confession to him, but also to receive all that God has for you. And some of us are bound by memories of the past, the guilt of stuff we've done, the shame of stuff that people have done to us. And I know memories cannot be erased, but we don't need to be a slave to them anymore. And maybe you'd like to be free of the grip and the hold those memories have in your life. Maybe some of us feel oppressed by other people just like the slave girl did. Oh, they literally don't own us, but in so many ways they do. And the relationship you don't seem to be able to get out of or change, Jesus could free you. Some of us are bound, like we read in the story, by something we can't explain. The presence of evil of something in our life that holds us back. But in the name of Jesus, that can go. And so I'm going to pray. And if you want to pray for me, you can give me a little wave and I'm going to pray right now. Let's pray together. Father, today, as we read a story that seems almost unbelievable, it's certainly unexpected. There's far more going on than a few people getting out of jail. And the truth about our lives is we feel so often like we're the people in jail. We're bound in so many ways. Some of us are bound in our own sinful choices and the things that have separated us from you. And today I want to pray for those in this room or watching online right now, that that's where we feel bound, uh, guilt and held back from you. That as we confess our sins quietly to you right now and say that we're sorry, we pray that you would be the one who forgives us in Jesus' name and that you would set us free from this tyranny of sin and selfishness and open our lives to you to live life the way that you intended. Some of us are all snagged up by things people have said to us. And it's taken such a hold of our mind that we never feel free. We always hear the words. Everybody that said I was dumb. Everybody that told me I couldn't read properly or write properly. Everybody that told me I could never finish school. We hear it. And yet, Lord, today we pray that you would set us free from all of this garbage in our lives, that you would break the power of those voices in our head and we can live life free and lightly with you. And some of us are bound by relationships that are so toxic and we don't know what to do. And Lord, we pray today that you would break those chains in Jesus' name right now. And some of us feel bound by things we don't understand, spiritual forces and powers. And just like happened in this day, we pray and say in the name of the Lord Jesus, go and leave these people alone. 
Father, thank you that today Jesus came to offer his life for us. And today we receive his gift of freedom in all sorts of ways that we could live freely and lightly with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus changes everything, but it cost him everything too. The night of Jesus' betrayal, the night when his friends would stab him in the back, he took bread at supper time and he broke it and he said, you've got these little packets with you. He broke it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Eat and be thankful. I doubt they had a clue, but they soon would because Jesus is for everyone. And so we eat and give thanks. After supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the chain breaker. Doesn't matter what, where or with who, Jesus breaks our chains and sets us free. He gave his life for our freedom. He rose from the dead so that we could live with the power of his life within us. And so today, as we give thanks, we do so to our King.